0: Hey, this is Jenny Penkin and Jayla Moda. Hi. We're going to be singing Eli Eli. Eli Eli Eli
1: This is Unorthodox. If you're listening to us this week, chances are you'd spent the last few days just as we all have, grappling with grief, rage, and worst of all, maybe, some sense of hopelessness. Here's what we know so far. Early on Saturday... October 7, several hundred Hamas terrorists crossed the border from Gaza and into Israel. How they managed to blindside and overpower the IDF, one of the world's mightiest armies, is a question that will be addressed in detail in weeks and months, and I suspect years to come. But from what we know right now, possible answers include some sort of cyber attack that took down Israel's advanced warning capabilities some kind of failure to gather credible information from operatives inside Gaza, the fact that it was a holiday and a Saturday and many soldiers were home celebrating with their families, and the fact that some forces were sent away from the Gaza border and into the West Bank to grapple with threats of terrorism there. Attempts and at answers are grim and sadly all too numerous. What is certain is what happened next. The terrorists drove uninterruptedly into Israel itself, in pickup trucks loaded with weapons. They massacred, according to the latest official numbers released by Israel, at least 800 people, including babies, elderly men and women, mothers, desperate to protect their children and others. In one music festival alone, more than 260 young men and women there to dance at dawn in the desert were slaughtered. Some of these atrocities were captured on video and posted to social media. Israelis have spent the last three days sharing accounts of how they had just watched their loved ones raped, tortured, or executed on camera, with the footage sometimes captured with the victim's own cell phones and posted to their own social media accounts for their families to see and find out that way. It is all so inconceivable. And even more unthinkable is the fact that hundreds of Israelis, recent accounts put the number at around 150, have been kidnapped into Gaza, including a number of American citizens, including very young children and old, frail folks. What happens to them now is anybody's guess. We know that, like us, your hearts are thoroughly broken by this. We know that you're eager to do something, anything, and that you're probably going mad when you realize that there's really very little any of us could do right now. But here are some things we can do things that combat all this terrible darkness with strength and resolve and light we can and must come together with other Jews and show the world that in our time of need we're indivisible we can and must double down on our jewish lives doing jewish things from praying to studying text to calling a fellow Jew in need and asking if there's anything we could do to help and we can listen listen to the stories Of those Israelis who'd survived the unimaginable. So this week, we're going to bring you some of these stories. A few of them are very difficult to hear. A few of them will give you a fresh surge of hope amid all this chaos. Together, they're a snippet of life in a nation at war. Our war and our nation. Chazak, chazak, venit chazek. We are strong and with God's help. We will get stronger.
2: This first audio diary is from Andre Perry. He was at NOVA, the all-night music festival that Hamas terrorists attacked in the early morning of October 7th. So far, officials have recovered 260 bodies from the area surrounding the festival. Andre tells us about the ambush.
3: Okay, so my name is Andre Perry. I'm from Kiryat Gat, which is in the firing zone from Gaza. I was at the party from 1 a.m. My wife and kids were at home. Throughout the time I was there, they were also affected by the rockets falling here. We were dancing, and around at six thirty, I was uh, sitting th- the outskirts of the party and relaxing a bit. And all of a sudden, I I heard the-, the Iron Dome shooting, and then I said, "Okay, Iron Dome. Okay, this happens. This is not unusual, unfortunately." And all of a sudden, another one and another one, and immediately grabbed like the friends that I was with. We were four of us, and we crouched on the floor and we sat there laying down. And they turn off the music, and police started saying "evacuate," and that was panic. Uh, And it's seven a.m. It's like we're at the peak of the party, so we don't know what to do. And then people started running, and we said, "Okay, um, there's going to be a traffic jam. None of us can really drive currently due to the situation we're in in the party." I think no need to go into details, but you can imagine if it's a rave, it's a party, seven a.m. None of us was able to drive. And we're trying to understand this, to assess the situation. We saw people panicking and we said, okay, none of us can drive. The police are saying evacuate from here. And we're saying, okay, there's no safe zone there. Same thing as being here, but I I understood them. They had to like, like we're all grouped in one place and they had to spread us away. And, and it's like one road leading to the party. So it's going to be a traffic jam. And we said, okay, the army is going to take care of it. Like we have the iron dome, we have the army, they're going to take care of it. So, and we're packing the car and all of a sudden, like my wife texted me and uh, one guy's uh, wife called him and she said, get out of there. Now there's stairs there. And f- from that moment on, he said, we're going into the car now. And then we said, you can't drive. He said, now we're going to the car. We dr- we, we jumped in the car, gassed away from there jumping and uh, off-road we got to the to the road and then the, the, the police was there they said turn to the right to another dirt road one minute after that we saw we heard an explosion and we saw people running we opened the windows we understood that there's terrorists in the back we just left the car it was it's, i think it's still running there uh just jumped out of the car didn't take anything and we there was like a valley It's like a creek, it's a dry creek and we just jumped there and I know like 30 people there. And then we were hiding, sorry. So we were there, we were hiding a bush. Think for an hour, I don't know. And hearing gunfire from multiple directions. And we were laying there and it was hard, like, you know, it's 8 a.m. after after that party, like I was I was like so shocked, like the rockets. Yeah, they sure they shot rockets, but like so many in one situation, like before we even know about the terrorists, we understood that it's like a war that's going to happen and like felt distressed, like we don't know what to do, how to take care of ourselves, like how to get into the car. What should we do? Where should we go? and like panic all around us laying in that bush. We were like the four of us. And then there were like four different girls that I think there were alone. Like we were a group of friends and they're alone and like we're hot. We're there. We're lying there and, like trying to comfort them in some way. And like holding their hand and we're lying down there. My instincts are like, okay, what do I do? How do I get out of get us out of there? And it's hard to function. And and in one moment, we felt like the, the shooting are just above our heads, like above the bush we're laying. I dove into that bush. And at that moment, I understood, like, either I'm dying with a bullet in my back from terrorists that I do not see them. Or I need to go up there and understand the situation, assess the situation. And like, how do we get the fuck out of here as soon as possible? And then I climbed up a bit. And the junction that we turned and like, there was an explosion there and gunfire. And we saw Yishuv Re'im and fire from there. And like, okay, I can't go there. We can't go there. And like, I feel helpless. Understood. Okay. We need water. We need shoes for one of the girls and we just need to get out. And the only direction is like Southeast, no village there. And I understand, like, we're going to be here for a couple of hours. And I had nothing on me. Like the only thing I, I want is a weapon. I want water. I want something to like to protect us. Like I came back down there and I said, listen, I, I'm, got, I'm going out of here. You want to join us to the other people. You want to join us. You want to stay, do whatever. I can't force you, but I, I recommend like get out of here. It was hard to make a decision to say to people, come follow me. When I'm going to the unknown, I have no idea what's what I'm expecting but to be in that situation like feeling as i said naked and helpless and like nothing that can protect me and to take more people with me i didn't know how to how to manage that situation so i said listen you want to come with me let's go together you want to stay stay but i'm going out of here and through the entire time like we the group of friends we supported each other and like one of the guys says like as a mantra he said we're coming home today and then, like it help, helped us, like ground us whenever we panicked or we didn't know how to how to react. And like that was our mantra. We're going home today. Throughout the time, like texting to my wife and to friends, like they're, they're opening off road like maps and like you can go there and you can go there and like talking to them. And we started walking from there. One girl, like she had no shoes, like and it's all thorns and she's walking through it. We stopped again in something, sh- someplace shady. We couldn't find water in one of the cars. And then we stayed there, called the police and they said, stay there. And like throughout the time, cars are driving by. You don't know if it's terrorist or not. Like I understood we're there for a couple of hours. No one's gonna come to rescue us. And, and then we were there in, the, in that bush and we stayed. We, we didn't know we we're gonna continue. We're not gonna continue. And then people started running from that direction. They were panicking as well. So it felt like people were chasing them. So we got up and like started running again. And in that time, like the group started to separate. And then we decided like the four of us and like another guy joined us. The girl with no shoes with with us, a car came in with one guy, uh, Miloimnik, from the IDF reserve. We said, take her from here. She can't walk. He took her uh, and then we continued by foot. And like France consult said, don't go to any settlement. Like uh, there's like terrorists there and we didn't know what to do. So Raim was out of, out of the question. Patish is the closest one. like 10 miles, I think. And then I decided, okay, let's go to the road and let's just stay away from the road. And if we see army or police uh, cars, we're going to go to the road. Otherwise, we're going to stay away. Then we walked there and we saw like a, a a group of police and army cars, and then we we knew it's, that's a safe place. We got there, they drove us like, I don't know, 10 minutes to one of the junctions. We were there and then my sister lives in Patish, which is a, a village close by. We got a lift there. A lot of people came into Patish to their community house and they had like hundreds of people there from the party. So my sister was arranging that to, to get everyone there and to write their names. So we stayed at my sister, there was like a hundred, hundreds of people there. And then they arranged buses to go to 'er Beersheba. and we took the bus and then my, my sister's brother took us home. And then another one of friends take the other guys home. It's like, and then like we arrived, uh, I arrived home at like four, like hugged my, my wife and daughters. And like the mantra for me, was like, I'm going home to my wife and daughters, like, don't be a hero protect yourself and the friends and how many as you can and get home. Like I'm going home. That was the mantra. And like, it was so hard to collect myself physically and mentally to, to function uh, from being like at a festival and like dancing and like celebrating like fun and freedom and happiness to such a surreal terror attack that no one anticipated coming. And like, only throughout the time, understanding how horrific, how horrific this was. Like, it's not just shooting rockets, like everything that the Hamas is saying that we're doing and we're not doing, they're doing that and multiplying by 20. Like, I'm afraid to look into the news. I haven't come home yet. And my army unit is texting, like, we're going to be recruited very time, very soon, like be ready. And. I felt I did the best I could to get myself and my friends out of that situation. And even still, I think, what could I have done better? What could I have done? My daughters, like, jumped on me. They didn't know, like, my daughters are six and four, so they knew I was in a party, not in the party. So they jumped on me and hugged me. And I felt gratitude of being alive, of, like, coming home. Like, I had, like, on my... Like going to the party, I put on two bracelets, which are like, um, it's their bracelets. I took them to the party. And I remember lying in the bush <laughs> and kissing those bracelets, saying I'm coming home.
2: Josh Mintz is a British-Israeli citizen who lives in Tel Aviv. He caught one of the first flights out of Israel and recorded a voice memo for us from the plane back to London.
4: I've tried a few times to record this, but I, I can't get myself to make sense. So I'm just going to go with it. Um, the darkness of that day was unbelievable. The pain the fear the horror lying on the floor of the shelter in our apartment holding my kid and singing to him to drown out the noise of explosions he fucking hates my singing rightly so and just just wondering how long i can can keep him from understanding what's happening and keep his innocence and looking in the news and not getting information and and seeing on on Twitter, on WhatsApp groups, just glimpses of of that abject horror. Yeah, I'm just broken. I have nothing. Nothing.
2: Yosef is a Bedouin-Israeli minibus driver. He drove partygoers to the Nova Music Festival. He was also responsible for bringing them home. Here's his story.
5: I'm a minibus driver. I brought people there the night before, and in the morning they called to get them back. I knew there was a Balagan and a war, but I said, I'm Israeli and I'm not going to leave them there. I'm going to continue and save them. I got there under fire at 6.30 a.m. They were firing all over the place. We laid down, raised our heads, and again, they shot at us. Finally, I said, that's it. I'm saving these people. I shoved 10 into my van and we escaped from the party and there was fire all over. I mean, it was war. And on the way, I just kept putting more and more people into the minibus. As many as I could save, I saved, including people that were injured. I took them through the agricultural fields to Kibbutz Tzilim. And from there, they were taken to a first aid clinic and then to Beersheva Sheva to Soroka Hospital. But I'm in trauma, in absolute shock until then. It's been a few nights that I haven't slept because of what I saw in front of my own eyes. I'm telling you, I hope no one has to see what I saw. It's unbelievable. It's different to hear it versus being there at the event because for two days I've been in trauma, just reliving what happened. When I arrived at the beginning, I could have turned around and left them there. But as a human, as an Israeli, I said, I'm going to save their lives. I went under fire and saved them. I didn't fear my own life, because I knew I was in war. I said, that's it, either I die or we'll live together, God and me. But thank God I was able to get there and save their lives. It's important that all the Israelis will be in peace and that they find those who are still there and return them to their parents. I've been a minibus driver for 30 years, and I'm so sorry that I'm not caring, that I don't have a gun. And I had a friend there with me, and he was killed, another minibus driver. I got out whole, and my friends stayed there, and they killed him in his minibus. He didn't succeed to flee or save anyone. They just killed him straight when they came in. This is something unbelievable, but I do want to say that we are Israelis and Israel is strong and it will continue to be strong and we're going to pass this war.
2: Shlomit Berman is an American-Israeli. She took us along with her to a donation center in Tel Aviv.
6: This is Shlomit Berman. It is October 8th, 2023. I'm going soon to meet my friends and we're gonna go on a little trip to make donations for fam- displaced families. We're gonna get some diapers and some formula and that sort of thing. My name is Sasha. I'm living in Israel for almost two years now. Like, the thing what we are doing with Shlomit, it's just the only way I think we can be helpful and useful. So we were just at the pharmacy, and we got basically as many diapers and formula and things for babies and families that we could think of and that we can carry. Um, We've reached uh, Dizengolf Square. Um, We can see that the whole whole square, which is actually a circle, is set up with like little temporary tents, the sort of uh, tent that you would see at like an artist fair or like a carnival, except the opposite. Um, You can see that there are many, many volunteers sort of packing different things into boxes. There's a lot of people and this is just really amazing. I really like to see how people can be, uh, how you say it, uh, chained together, something like this, connected in the time when we needed the most. Um, I see a lot of more diverse people than I would usually see um, in in this kind of crowd. I see people who look more religious. Um, I see. People of, of many different backgrounds all just kind of taping boxes up together and, and that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's nice to see that, that people are, are working together.
4: The atmosphere will really volunteer. We're really like a warming heart you know like i really enjoyed the atmosphere because everybody came it doesn't matter if you like left or right like um, everybody like came became together like friends again
6: um, right now we are walking down Dizengoff from Dizengoff square to Dizengoff center where
3: there's a
5: blood donation center. So center.
6: we're at Disingolf Center, the place is not small but it's still cramped because there are it's not meant to hold this many people there's uh, a line of people waiting who've sort of filled out a form like there there are so many people who are donating blood but even just type o people to donate uh they're asking people to come back tomorrow and i'm sure many people will and uh, i see people like Fighting actually with the, the work volunteers, uh, like the like a Karen almost saying. But you said you would be open until nine. It's it's crazy because people are fighting for the chance to donate. They're they're being aggressive about giving blood. I'm actually volunteering because I need to occupy
7: my to t- to do something. I can I cannot sit at home. I'm fat. So you, you
1: donated blood?
7: I donated blood,
0: yes, because they asked for a blood uh, type O, and I'm O minus. Uh, I came here six hours ago. Can I
6: ask you how yesterday was for you and, and what you're feeling now and what you were feeling
0: yesterday? Um, the same, I guess. It comes and goes. It's horrible. Um, I don't think anyone knows how to cope with it, and I'm a teacher, so. I need to step up, and I don't know if I'm able to do that yet. My name is Anel Sayada,
8: and I am uh, a volunteer in MDA in Israel. I'm religious, so yesterday was rack for me. So I didn't know what happened until Motze Hag, and it was really hard. It was like a bad movie, a really, really bad movie. Um, I'm home now.
6: And I really want to reflect on what one of those women, uh, the woman who donated blood, said. She she said that it it comes in waves, and and really she's right. Um, this morning and most of today, while I was on uh, donations and while I was traveling, I was feeling better because I felt like I knew what, more or less what was going on. I was also seeing some good news. I was seeing. People helping one another. But the truth is that more and more of my friends are being called to reserves. And I don't know what sort of service that's going to be. I'm really, really afraid for the people I love. I know this is a very weird thing to quote at a time like this, but uh, over Yom Kippur, I usually watch all of Lord of the Rings. And there's a scene where, where Pippin is, is talking to Gandalf as they watch the, 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 bad, the, the army of, of villains marching towards the, their, their city. And Pippin says to Gandalf, I don't want to be in a battle, but standing on the edge of one I can't avoid is worse. And that's really where I feel like I am right now, like I'm standing on a balcony and I'm watching the clouds come in and I just don't know where the lightning is going to strike.
2: We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences, and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet, and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Maya Rosen is a journalist and producer in Israel. Here's her report from a missing person center near Ben Gurion Airport, where Israelis are coming in droves to look for information about their missing loved ones.
7: My name is Maya Rosen, and I'm a reporter here in Israel. As of right now, four days into the Hamas invasion into Israel, over 900 people are confirmed dead, at least 2,400 more are wounded. Dozens, perhaps hundreds, of people are still missing. Soldiers, civilians, men, women, grandparents, young children, and babies. Families in search of answers are turning to a missing person center in airport city in central Israel, in the hope they can find out something about their missing families and friends. Not since the Yom Kippur War in 1973 has a missing person center of this magnitude been created. Fifty years ago, it was located in a basement filled with documents added by foreign information networks. Today, the center is located in a police building and is open 24-7 and staffed with representatives from the police, the IDF, and social services. The families of the missing come to the center with DNA samples of their loved ones as well as photos to help the military make identifications. They give a detailed testimony. In some cases, the IDF have been able to help, but many families are still in search of answers. I spend time in the center hoping to understand their pain their frustration and fears. Here are some of their stories. First is Oriana Dar. She found out from a video on social media that her grandmother, Yafa Adar, from kibbutz near Oz, was kidnapped and taken to Gaza.
9: Like the entire country, we woke on Saturday to the sound of sirens. There was one in the morning that woke us up and we ran to the safe room and we started to get wind that something was happening in the south. This isn't new. As someone who has family in the Gaza envelope, you get used to this. That day we were intending to go visit my grandmother. My grandmother was eager for our visit since she dearly loves my children. So we woke up in the morning and told them we weren't going to kibbutz near Oz, and we were messaging back and forth with grandma to ask what was going on. They said they were in the safe room. My grandmother lives alone, but there are other family members in the kibbutz. We were still laughing about how much food she had prepared so that at least now they would have a lot to eat while staying in the safe room. She joked that maybe she would have it delivered to us. A little later, shortly before 9 a.m., she messaged us saying there was fighting, that there were terrorists in the kibbutz and there was fighting. And that was actually the last time. Later, I sent her a message telling her to stay safe. She still managed to read that message according to WhatsApp, but she didn't read any of the messages after that. That's it. From that moment, we lost contact with her. We were still in touch with other relatives of ours in the kibbutz, but she stopped responding. And as the hours went by, we realized something terrible was happening. The other relatives we were corresponding with and staying in touch with were relaying the horrors to us, absolute horrors. My grandfather is there. My grandparents are divorced. My grandfather has a respiratory disease, and they set his house on fire with him inside. He had to flee and hide in another room in the house and managed to get to the hospital at the last minute. My aunt lives there with her 17-year-old daughter, who was messaging us as terrorists were in the house. At some point, their house was also set on fire, so they ran to a mobile shelter. I don't know if you are familiar with the mobile shelters we have in the kibbutz. It's a very small, open space. It provides cover, but it doesn't have a door or anything that can be bolted shut. They hid there quietly on the ground and waited for everything to die down. They were there with another family that fled its home. One member of that family had a firearm, so at least they had some protection. But I don't know how helpful it would have been if they had been discovered. My cousin Tamir lives there with his two children and his wife Hadass. When everything started, he went out to protect his family and simply did not return. Until now, we have no idea where he is. At least we have a shred of information about my grandmother from that video everyone has seen. We simply don't know where our Tamir is. When the military finally arrived toward the afternoon, they went house by house to check the situation. When they arrived at my grandmother's house, they discovered the house was completely destroyed, but my grandmother was gone. My aunt called to tell us, we didn't know anything for a very long time, until at night we started getting reports of that video that we've all seen of my grandmother. I think calling them terrorists is paying them a compliment. All we have is this video from the moment she was abducted on her mobility scooter. It's funny because when my kids visit near Oz, the first thing she does is proudly give them a ride on it. They love that mobility scooter so much. And for her, it's a way to take them for a ride and they enjoy it so much. And those terrorists took her in the mobility scooter too. It breaks my heart to see that picture alongside a picture of my children with her on the scooter. From that moment, we've been living a nightmare. We don't know how she is. What we do know is that she's an 85-year-old woman. And like many elderly people, her body isn't what it used to be. So she is on many different medications for pain relief, her blood pressure, and the other things she needs. Currently, we have no reports that she has received any of the medications she needs. So we know if she is still alive, she is suffering and in terrible agony without her medication and the people who love her. And it's clear to us that it's only a matter of time, and that if we don't do something to get her back, she will die a slow, miserable, horrible death. We are talking about so many people who died, and it breaks my heart. But we have someone here who is alive or that we at least know was alive. And there are more people there, not just her. There are people there who are definitely alive, and we can't not do everything in our power to bring them back. If you had told me a week ago that I would appear in tears on every news broadcast around the world, I would have said, not me, no way, not a chance. But there is something here that is greater than what the soul can even try to comprehend. This is an 85-year-old woman who is in bed in her room. She didn't fight. She never harmed anyone. She was in her home. There's no law that says an 85-year-old woman needs to die horribly in captivity in Gaza. I simply don't understand why the entire world doesn't shout this. We found out from the video. I should say that we had thought she was no longer with us. We couldn't completely comprehend how you could kidnap an 85-year-old woman who can barely walk. It seemed unlikely, so we thought she was gone. And as sad as this is to say, there was something, I hope that this isn't a pleasant thing to say, that she died from a bullet to the head and that they took her body as ransom. I would have been much calmer and more at ease rather than knowing my grandmother was experiencing this suffering. And it is very possible that she will now go through this misery and still die there. Let me tell you something about the video. Many people watched it and asked me whether my grandmother has Alzheimer's or dementia. So I'm saying this everywhere. No. She is a sharp and brilliant woman. She's smart and lucid. This sounds bad, but in a way, Maybe I would rather she had dementia and didn't understand what was happening. But she is fully aware. She's one of those people who will never let anyone see them in another light. We could visit her and she'd be in pain in her entire body and she would still sit there and play with the kids and not let anyone see that she was suffering. She won't let Hamas see her suffering either. But you need to remember that beneath that mask of strength that she showed the world, there is a woman who is terrified and alone without her family. And I hope she remembers that we love her and we are doing everything we can to get her back.
8: <laughs>
9: These efforts by everyone warm my heart and we truly have an amazing country. <laughs> Today is my daughter's fifth birthday, and I wanted to make her happy. And there are soldiers here who sent her balloons. We have an amazing country. We just need to finish this thing and start rebuilding the nation. I have a family that has nowhere to return to. My aunt fled her home with her phone. She doesn't even have her eyeglasses. That's how little these people have. Her house burned to ash. She has nowhere to return to. I don't know if she'd even want to go back to that hell. But even if she does, they have nothing. The kibbutz is in ruins. There are ruined people and ruined families there. And after we return our hostages, we need to figure out how to help them and not forget about them. There was a video going around yesterday claiming she was returned. You can't comprehend how many messages of joy I received as though people were suddenly able to breathe again and how hard it was for me to write them that it wasn't her and she wasn't back and that the video was fake. Our hearts are broken and have stayed broken, but I felt like I was breaking other people's hearts all over again because people need hope and I wasn't able to give them that hope. My sister and I are here not resting for a moment and speaking to anyone who will listen so that maybe someone will do something, wake up, join forces and figure out how to get them back. This is unhumanitarian, illogical, and irrational.
7: Next is Ofir Nadborny. Her cousin Savion Chen Kiper went to a party in the south. For three days, her family didn't know
10: what had happened to her until they were informed that she was killed. So my name is Afir, my cousin, Savion. She was only 30. She went to a party down south with her boyfriend. It was a small party. It wasn't the one that everyone was talking about. It was only like 100 people. When the air sirens started, she texted her friend saying that they're running to take cover. And that was the last time we heard from her. We waited and waited and waited for her to reach out and nothing happened. When the rescue teams were starting to come in and they're saying people are, are safe, we checked all of the lists and she was nowhere, her boyfriend was nowhere. We went to the uh, missing people center in Airport City. We went to every hospital to check if she's on the list, if we can identify her face. She was nowhere. Um, we spent three days between life and death, really, until the police came to her parent house and they said she, they found her body. Um... Her funeral was a few hours ago. Unfortunately, during the funerals, there were air sirens. So twice we had to leave her body and take cover so we can keep everyone alive and safe. And also during the funeral, the police came to inform us that they found her boyfriend. So although we're very happy to get clarity, we're just distraught over everything that happened. Her father is very sick. They had to release him from the hospital, especially for these circumstances. And they're absolutely distraught, as you can imagine. When your kid dies, it's it's awful. They didn't know anything about her for days. It, It was awful.
7: Here is Mayan Sherman. Her son, Private Ron Sherman, is a soldier at the Coordination and Liaison Command who was kidnapped to Gaza when terrorists raided his base.
8: The last time we saw him, we heard from him, it was uh, on Saturday. He started texting me. There was a massive rocket attack on the base. He was sleeping during the time it started, so he was with his uh, shorts and t-shirt, and he just ran to this shelter with uh, his friends. He wrote me, Mom, I'm really scared a really heavy rocket attack. It it wasn't like this before. Then he texted me that, Mom, there are terrorists inside the base. I didn't believe him yet. I have to, and I really, I, I thought that he was, he's really like, he is 19 now, but he's still very boyish. You know, he's, when he told me that there are terrorists in the base, I, I, I was sure. I wasn't even worried, I, really. I thought it was his imagination. It's not real then he told me, I, I hear Arab language outside. The terrorists are just outside um, the shelter. What should I do? Should I go back to there because he was unharmed? Should I go back to my room to take the gun, my gun? Should they, What should I do? And he's really not a combat soldier, he's just um, like a clerk. And I told him, On, stay in the, in the shelter and don't do anything. And uh, afterwards, he wrote me, they're coming in. I love you. I love Dad. Um, he, he wrote uh, it the end. These were his last words, and we were sure that uh, he was dead. But at about, uh, I think, the four or five hours later, we uh, started to receiving uh, all kinds of videos from the that Hamas has, has posted. Uh, which uh, we saw him. We saw he was taken to the Gaza Strip and they filmed everything. We we see ourselves lucky that we know that he is still alive. I was really sure that he was dead. We are the fortunate ones to see the videos and to, to know what happened to him. We know that he, they took him uninjured to Gaza. The others don't know anything about the children. They don't know if they are dead or alive, they don't know anything, and there are so many dead. I hope to, to wake up from this nightmare. It's something that we never thought that could happen here in Israel. The only thing that is very important to us is that one is uh, asthmatic, and he needs his inhaler, and of course he doesn't have it there, and they said that they put them in tunnels, and we are very worried because if he doesn't have it, and his inhaler, he can die. From from asthma, he had problems breathing even in uh, his room in, in in the house. So how how what would happen there? I don't know really. This is something that we're very worried about. His job was to help the the Arab citizens in Gaza because he had to look after all the traders when they bring in and out the merchandise and goods from Gaza Strip to Israel and uh, backwards. This was his job. He loved his job. He wanted to help the Arab citizens. He was very happy there in this base. We didn't love the idea that he's there. We thought that it was uh, too close to the border because the base is really on the border. Ron loves loves animals. He loves nature. He loves to travel. He loves people. He has so many friends. Just now I get so many telephone calls from his friends that some of them I didn't know I didn't know exist, but I knew that he had many, many friends. And and this was him. He, He was very friendly and he was an excellent student at school, which just finished it just one year ago, high school. And he wanted to study law. That was his dream and we always said that he was born like a lawyer a little lawyer and we hope that uh, we hope that he will get out of it really we are still we have hope that he will be okay we are very worried we really we hope that things will be better hope that uh, somebody will help us uh, bring him back it's the most important thing to us we don't care if he's uh, really injured we just want him alive really
5: Hey, it's producer Eli Blyer, and here's a voice note from Benny Brustein. Benny is from Kibbutz Israel, and his family actually adopted me when I served as a lone soldier. Benny sent me this voice note as he got called up to reserve duty and was preparing to deploy.
3: Eli, I really didn't have time. If you want later, you can translate it to English. So yesterday, my unit was called up. We arrived at the base. Now we're just waiting. Yesterday, they said we were supposed to go down south to help reinforce the area next to Gaza, where the settlements are. In the end, that order was canceled. We spent all night uncertain. All the time, we were doing drills. Soon, we are going to head up north after about 24 hours of uncertainty of what would happen to us. Now they're taking our phones. We don't know when the next time we'll get them. Or when we'll talk with our families. It's a situation where you say shit. Parents talking with their kids, not sure they're coming back. It's not a simple situation to see. But somehow people here are keeping their good moods as much as they can and understand that it's much bigger than all that we have in the country. That's it. I love you and miss you, Ellie.
1: Like so many of you, the events in Israel have left us searching for the right words to express our feelings of sadness, shock, and horror. But when words fail us, music is always there. We reached out to world-renowned musician Regina Spector, who stopped what she was doing, to share a prayer with us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Khaneenu <laughs> fernenu Eu Am Israel Chai Am Yisrael Chai forever
2: That was the incredible Regina Spector singing Avinu Malkeinu. The song you heard at the opening of this episode was performed by Jenny Penkin and Jay LaMata. We're grateful to everyone for sharing their stories with us. Special thanks to producer Ellie Blyer, who helped make so much of this episode happen. Noam Blum for translation help and Maya Rosen and Shlomi Berman for their reporting on the ground in Israel. Unorthodox is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Ruskay, Sam Hacker, and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. And our theme music is by Golem. Shalom,
9: friends, and Am Yisrael Chai.